Well, this morning we come to the end of our series looking at the letter to the Hebrews. And if you've been here over the past five weeks, you'll have seen that this is a letter written to a group of discouraged Christians, a group of believers who've grown disillusioned with the Christian life, who are struggling to believe they can carry on living for Jesus. And we've seen that we don't know who wrote this letter, but we do discover from reading it that the writer knew his readers very well. And he's writing this to encourage them to persevere, to, to keep going for Jesus. And he does that by lifting their eyes to who Jesus is and to recognizing the huge difference he makes in the life of everyone who trusts in him. So throughout this letter, the writer urges his readers to see who Jesus is, the Son of God who humbled himself and became a man. He wants them to see what Jesus has done in winning forgiveness for everyone who trusts in him through his death at the cross. And he wants them to see what Jesus will do for them if they persevere, which is to bring them into a glorious new creation with him, free from sin and death and evil. And I hope we've seen in the course of this series, that even though this is a letter written to discourage Christians, it's actually a letter written for every Christian. Hebrews is in the Bible because every single Christian who lives long enough will face times of discouragement and struggle as they live for Jesus. That's why we pray, isn't it? That's why I've been praying for this this contact of Lisa and Peter's this morning. We all face times in great ways and small ways of discouragement and struggle. And as a result, we need to hear the message of Hebrews because it's a message we need, whether we're discouraged right now or whether we just need to prepare for that time when we will face struggle and discouragement. For the Bible promises they will come. So the question facing us this morning from Hebrews 12 and 13, is, well, how does this writer end his letter to these discouraged Christians? What's the advice he leaves them with? What does he want them to take away from this letter uh, to help them live for Jesus in the face of struggle and weakness? And I want to suggest that the key to understanding the end of this letter is in those verses I've just read to us. They're on the screen here. Hebrews 12, verse 28 Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us be thankful and so worship God acceptably with reverence and awe. So I want to suggest that if you wanted to, you could, you could paraphrase the writer's closing advice to his readers as follows. The remedy for discouragement in the Christian life is to worship God with your whole life. The remedy for discouragement is worship. That's how the writer closes this letter. And that might come as a bit of a shock to us. I mean, surely responding to God in worship is the last thing a discouraged Christian wants to do. Surely the writer is being unrealistic here, a bit insensitive even, to tell these struggling believers they need to worship God acceptably. Doesn't that just amount to placing another burden 
on their backs at a time when they already feel so weak. See, I think what these closing chapters of Hebrew force us to ask is, how important is worship to the life of a Christian? How important is worship? We've been thinking a bit about that already this morning, and I think the answer to that question depends a lot on how you define worship. For many Christians today, when we hear the word worship, we instinctively think of music, the use of music in church services. So, in the Western church, Toby's actually alluded to it already without being prompted, but over the last few decades, we've sort of seen something's called the worship wars. This is a bit like Star Wars or something. But the worship wars, and they revolve around the question, how do we worship God acceptably when we gather together? Should we use hymns or should we use modern songs? Should we use an organ? Should we use a guitar? Should we stand relatively still or should we raise our hands and move around in worship to God? See, that question, how important is worship to the Christian life? If we just think worship is about music, then we're going to come with very different answers to that. For some of us, music is really important to us. It helps us praise God and we take it very seriously. Other people I've met can just take it or leave it. It doesn't make that much of a difference to them. So is that what worship means here? Is it just what we do when we gather together and use music together? Well, I believe the answer to that is no. That isn't all that is meant by worship. Actually, worship in these chapters and throughout the Bible means a whole lot more than that. True worship in the pages of Scripture is about how we live our whole lives in response to God's mercy as he reveals that to us in Jesus. As a result, worship is going to include the way we use music, but it's also going to include a whole lot more than that. And there is a real danger, actually, when we begin to think of worship just as what we do when we meet together as church, what we do when we sing together. And I want to just pick out two passages in the Bible that challenge what is often a very small view of worship that we can fall into, one from the Old Testament and one from the New. The first one is from the book of Amos, chapter 5, 21 to 24. I've got it on the screen there. Let me read it for us. This is God speaking to the Israelites. God says, I hate, I despise your religious feasts. I cannot stand your assemblies. Even though you bring me burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. Though you bring choice fellowship offerings, I will have no regard for them. Away with the noise of your songs. I will not listen to the music of your harps. But let justice roll on like a river. Righteousness like a never-failing stream. See, the people in Amos' day, the Israelites there, they were actually very good at worship if that meant the times they met together. They, they had, had harps and songs and from looking on as they gathered together, you'd assume they were godly people. But see, God says here, he sees through their outward religious observance. And actually, ultimately, he's not interested in their songs and the music of their harps. What he wants to see in his people is a concern for justice in the world he has made. A concern for righteousness that can only come when people humble themselves before the righteous God and ask him to change them. See, according to Amos, true worship 
is about a lot more than just what we do as we meet as church. True worship is how we live our whole lives in response to God. And similarly, in Romans chapter 12, verse 1, the Apostle Paul reminds us, he says, Therefore, I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. See, Paul agrees with Amos here. Paul says the worship God wants his people to offer is our whole lives. Offer your bodies as living sacrifices, he tells the Roman Christians. What he means is, wherever your body happens to be, worship God with it. If your body is at home, worship God. If your body is at work, worship God. If your body is surrounded by other Christians, worship God there. If you're the only Christian present, worship God there in how you live. And that has huge implications for us. Whether you are changing a nappy, whether you're writing an email, whether you're standing by the school gate, whether you're giving a presentation, whether you're in the pub, whether you're in the football pitch, wherever your body is, Paul says, offer it in worship to God as a living sacrifice. Worship God wherever you are with everything that you are. See, that is true worship according to God's word. And it's a call to this life of worship that the letter to the Hebrews closes. So I want us to ask this morning, when we think about that call to worship, to use our whole lives in response to God's grace, why is that good advice for a group of discouraged Christians to hear? So let's look at these chapters together now. And first of all, we need to see that the writer's call to worship God, it doesn't happen in a vacuum. It doesn't come out of nowhere. See, when the book of Hebrews and any other bit of the Bible calls God's people to worship, it is always in response to what God has already done for them. And Hebrews 12 and 13 is no different in that. So again, using verse 20 of chapter 12 to guide our time, First of all, we need to see that that true worship is in response to God since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, the writer says. It's such an evocative phrase. And with that phrase, he's looking back to chapter 12, verses 18 to 24. And in those verses, he draws a vivid contrast. James read them at the beginning of our service between the access God's people enjoyed in the Old Testament and the access that God's people enjoy now because of Jesus. So in verses 18 to 24 of chapter 12, the writer compares two mountains. He compares Mount Sinai, where God met with Moses and the people of Israel and gave them his law, with Mount Zion, where God will welcome every man, woman and child who has put their trust in Jesus and in the salvation he's won for them. And if you look down at those verses, 18 to 24, you look closely at them, you see the writer mentions seven features of each. And he's determined that his readers recognize just how better off they are in their relationship with God than the believers in the Old Testament were. And just before we look at those verses, we just need to remember something here. 
The writer of the Hebrews doesn't dislike the Old Testament. Actually, he's got a very high view of it. The writer's convinced that the Old Testament is the living and active word of God. And he quotes from it extensively in this letter to lead his readers to Jesus. So he's not just dismissing the Old Testament here, as often we do at times. He's not saying it's unimportant. But what he wants these struggling Christian readers to see is the fantastic difference Jesus has made to the relationship between God's people and the living God. So let me just read verse 18 to 21 for us. He writes, You have not come to a mountain that can be touched and that is burning with fire, to darkness, gloom and storm, to a trumpet blast or to such a voice speaking words that those who heard it begged that no further word be spoken to them because they could not bear what was commanded. If even an animal touches the mountain, it must be stoned. The sight was so terrifying that Moses said, I am trembling with fear. See, the descriptions of Israel at Mount Sinai make it clear that it is a terrifying thing when sinful human beings approach a holy God. See, what the Israelites saw at Mount Sinai was blazing fire, darkness and gloom. What they heard was the sound of rushing wind, a trumpet blast and a voice that spoke words of such holiness that they begged it to stop. See, what they experienced at Mount Sinai was above all fear. Even Moses said, I am trembling with fear. That was God's encounter with his people at Mount Sinai. And the writer asks us to contrast that with verses 22 and 24. Let me just read those for us. But you have come to Mount Zion to the heavenly Jerusalem, the city of the living God. You have come to thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful assembly, to the church of the firstborn, whose names are written in heaven. You have come to God, the judge of all men, to the spirits of righteous men made perfect, to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. See, the description of Mount Zion is not characterised by fear. It's characterised by celebration, the writer says. What we see at Mount Zion is not darkness and gloom. It is the heavenly Jerusalem, the city of the living God. What we hear is not a voice we beg to stop, but the joyful song of thousands upon thousands of angels celebrating the goodness and the grace of God. What we experience is not the fear of being consumed by a holy God, but the assurance of knowing that if we trust in Jesus, our names are written in heaven. That we belong to the church of the firstborn. We belong to Jesus, the mediator of a better covenant. Verse 24. Now, God is still the same God at Mount Zion. He's still holy. Verse 23, he's still the judge of all men. But thanks to Jesus, we now know that God can give his holiness to ordinary men and women who put their trust 
in Jesus. And we can also know that those who live by faith in Jesus, who've gone ahead of us, who are already with him, they have been made perfect by him. Just as we will be if we persevere in our walk with him. When we see God face to face. So just look at verses 22 to 24. This is an awe-inspiring picture the writer leaves with his readers. The writer leaves with us. See, you may feel discouraged now, he tells his readers, but look where you're headed. You may feel a long way off from God right now as you struggle to live for him, but in reality, and thanks to Jesus, you actually have full access to the living God and all that he has won for you. So you may feel alone and cut off from other people as you struggle in the Christian life, but in reality, thousands upon thousands of angels are standing alongside you, willing you on in your love of God. The the spirits of righteous men made perfect are there ahead of you, urging you to follow, to trust in the God of all faithfulness, to know that your labour for him is never in vain. You are not alone, the writer tells his readers. You have full access to this God. You are at Mount Zion. And one day you will see that in its fullness. See, if you're a Christian here this morning, the message of Hebrews is the same for us. You are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And let's be honest, everything else in life can be shaken. Everything else in life is fragile and it is transient, whether it's your job, your future plans, your health, your family. Everything can be shaken except this future hope that God has set before us. It is kept for you. It is completely secure in God's hands and one day you will enjoy all the blessings and richness of life that come from dwelling in that heavenly city described here. If you're trusting in Christ today, you already have a share in that city and you already have full access to the God of grace. So the writer tells his readers, take heart from that. Rejoice in what God has won for you. Rejoice in in the angels standing alongside you, willing you on. And be thankful for that, he tells them. That's the next bit of verse 28. Let us be thankful. See, Hebrews, it's a letter full of the promises of God, lifting our eyes to what God has done and won for us. But it's also a letter full of warnings. And actually, this call to be thankful is one of them. It looks back to verses 14 to 17 of chapter 12. You want to look at those verses now. In the example of Esau in the Old Testament, let me read verses 14 to 17. Make every effort to live in peace with all men and to be holy. Without holiness, no one will see the Lord. 
See to it that no one misses the grace of God and that no bitter root grows up to cause trouble and defile many. See that no one is sexually immoral or is godless like Esau, who for a single meal sold his inheritance rights as the oldest son. Afterwards, as you know, when he wanted to inherit the blessing, he was rejected. He could bring about no change of mind, though he sought the blessing with tears. See, Esau was the twin brother of Jacob, and he's referred to here as a powerful example of the dangers of thanklessness, the dangers of ingratitude in response to the grace of God. The story the writer refers to here can be found in Genesis 25. Esau was the firstborn son of Isaac, and as a result, he was in line to inherit everything from his father. And the inheritance rights he enjoyed were no ordinary rights, Genesis tells us. They were the great promises God had made to Abraham, Esau's grandfather, to make his name great, to bless all peoples of the earth through him, to make him a blessing. See, basically, God had promised to save the world through Abraham's family. Because through Abraham's descendants, Jesus would come into the world to die on a cross. And as the oldest son, Esau enjoyed the privilege of being part of God's great salvation purposes and also he would have enjoyed a place in the glorious future we've just looked at. This was an amazing privilege Esau enjoyed. And what did Esau do with that privileged position given to him by God? Well, verse 16 tells us he sold his inheritance for a single meal. Genesis 25 tells us he came home from hunting, famished, and his brother Jacob was making some red stew. He begged Jacob to give him some stew, and Jacob took his chance. Jacob would give Esau some stew if, in exchange, Esau sold Jacob his birthright. And Esau's response, Genesis 25, verse 32, Look, I'm about to die. What good is the birthright to me? And he sold it to Jacob. For a single meal, Esau gave away the inheritance rights to the promises of God. For a meal that would satisfy him just for a few hours, Esau, verse 15, missed the grace of God. Esau despised his birthright. He didn't thank God for it. He didn't value it. He saw it as unimportant. What he wanted was food here and now. Comfort here and now. Satisfaction here and now. And Genesis is clear, the meal wasn't even that great. Red stew was a very cheap meal. But Esau was hungry. So he sold his future to Jacob. The writer of Hebrews wants us to to, to hear him here. Do not be like Esau, he tells us. Instead, be thankful for all that God has given you and the future he has in store for you. Don't give that future up for brief and momentary things here and now. Learn to thank God for what he's done. 
Don't treat it with contempt. Don't presume upon it. Don't think, oh, well, that's all very well there, but, but, but I'm hungry now. Don't give it up, the writer tells his readers. Let us be thankful, he says. Let us value all that Jesus has won for us. Let us value the grace God has shown to us. Let us be thankful. And in response, let us worship God acceptably with reverence and awe. And the writer really explores that in chapter 13. He says, don't be like Esau. Don't just live for the moment. He says, instead, worship God with your whole life in response to what God has won for you. I hope you can see, as we had chapter 13 read to us, we spent weeks in this chapter exploring together what a life of worship looks like in our, in our personal relationships, in our marriages, in our attitude to money, in our attitude to church life. We'll explore a little bit of that in a moment. But, but for now... I want us to see, looking at chapter 13, can you see now why the writer is so keen to urge his readers to live lives of worship to God? See, he knows that in the midst of discouragement and struggle, it is very easy just to brood on our struggle and our weakness. It's very easy to say, well, well, I can't do anything for God right now. God shouldn't ask me to honour him right now. God didn't ask me to listen to him right now until he keeps his end of the bargain. Life is just too difficult right now. I can't worship him. I can't live for him. I I don't even want to, to listen to him. See, it's very easy to brood on our struggles and discouragements. And so at the end of this letter, the writer says, don't do that. Instead, worship God with your whole lives. If you don't do that, you will drift into being an Esau. You will just devalue what God has done. It won't matter to you. You'd sell it in a moment for something that you really wanted. Instead, the writer urges his readers, learn what it means to worship God, even when that is a struggle. To obey him in your lives, to listen to his word and in dependence on God's grace to live your lives in response to him. You see, chapter 13, it's not just the writer placing extra burdens on the shoulders of his readers. No, the life of worship he calls us to here, he believes, is the only life worth living. These aren't sort of harsh, restrictive commands tacked on to the end of the letter. They are life-giving, life-enriching commands. And if we listen to God and in dependence on his grace obey him, then actually we will grow to enjoy more of what Jesus has won for us. And we'll grow to value just who God is and the difference Jesus has made to our relationship with him. Don't brood in your struggle and discouragement, the writer tells his readers. Worship him with your life. And I guess that just leads on to the question, do we really believe that the life God calls us to is the best life we could ever live? 
Because the writer of Hebrews is convinced that it is. He's convinced that the only response to God's call is to worship him with everything that we are, wherever we are. That's the life he calls his readers to in chapter 13. And just a few examples of that life of worship we're called to. He tells us, verses 1 to 3, to love one another. Whether those you already know, verse 1, those you've only just met, verse 2, maybe believers you will never meet, verse 3, who are persecuted for their faith. Keep on loving one another as brothers, verse 1. Why? Well, his readers know, because the Christian life can be hard. We're not in the new creation yet. We will struggle here and now. So love one another, he tells them. Support one another. Encourage one another. In verse 4, he tells his readers to honour marriage and family life. And that is such an important message for us today. The culture we live in sort of fluctuates between two extremes when it comes to marriage. People either worship it, so we're thinking of, of romantic comedies or Jane Austen novels or a general fear of singleness, or they despise it. Say marriage is irrelevant. And to stay with one sexual partner your whole life, that's just unnatural. The Bible says, don't go for either of those extremes. Don't worship marriage. It won't satisfy you ultimately. Only God can do that. But don't despise it either. Honour it as a gift from God and as a picture of God's covenant love for his people. And following on from that, verse 4 tells us to be faithful in our marriages. God is faithful to us as our husband. We need to be faithful to our partners. Verse 4, a very solemn warning. God will judge the adulterer and all the sexually immoral. Worship God in your marriages and in your attitude to marriage, he tells us. And then verse 5, learn to be content with what you have. This phrase, keep your lives free from the love of of money, A fight that I think gets harder the older you get, the more responsibilities you have. This world tells us that if we just had a bit more money, life would be good. If we had a bit more money, life would be a whole lot easier. This world tells us to love money. So how can we fight against that love of money? Well, verses 5 to 6 give us an answer. That is to grasp hold of the faithfulness of God. Verse 5, God has said, never will I leave you. Never will I forsake you. So we say with confidence, the Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. What can man do to me? Don't love money, the writer says. Grow in your love of your faithful God. God will not abandon you. He will not forsake you or leave you. Trust in him and he will provide for you. Don't love money. Love the living God. Now, there is so much more we could say about the life of worship from this chapter. How that would affect our attitude towards church leaders, towards the Bible, towards the people God brings into our lives. But, but we do need to finish. So I just want to finish our time in Hebrews with two reminders 
that chapter 13 gives us for why, even in the face of discouragement and struggle, Christians can live their lives as acts of worship to the living God. See, first of all, verse 11 onwards of chapter 13 tells us we can live lives of worship because Jesus has gone ahead of us. Verse 11 reminds us that in the old sacrificial system, the bodies of sacrificial animals were burnt outside the camp as a sign that the sin of the people had been removed from them. Then verse 12 links that Old Testament practice to the death of Jesus on the cross in our place. Let me read verse 12 for us. And so Jesus also suffered outside the city gate to make the people holy through his own blood. See, Jesus was crucified outside the city gate. He suffered the punishment for our sins and he was despised and rejected for it. But in suffering outside the city gate, Jesus was winning a place for everyone who trusts in him to the everlasting city. Verse 14. For here we do not have an enduring city, but we are looking for the city that is to come. See, Jesus suffered outside the city to qualify us for the heavenly city. And what that means for our lives here and now is spelt out in verse 13. Let us then go to him outside the camp bearing the disgrace he bore. Jesus calls his people to be his disciples, to take up our cross and follow him. And these believers are struggling. We've seen that again and again in this letter. What the writer tells them is, don't be discouraged by that, because Jesus knew what it was to struggle. Jesus knew what it was to bear disgrace as he was mocked on the cross and when you bear disgrace for following him you are following in his footsteps and that will win you joy and blessing let us then go to him outside the camp Jesus has been there ahead of us and he is going ahead of us he knows what it is like and he is able to help us in our struggle and our weakness, when we face hostility and ridicule, when our own hearts condemn us, Jesus has gone ahead of us. He will help us and he will bring us to be with him ultimately. So let us go to him outside the city so we can go to that heavenly city he he has called us to. And then finally, verses 20 to 21. These great words of blessing that remind us again why weak and struggling Christians can persevere. But simply, we can persevere because God can make us persevere. Verses 20 to 21. May the God of peace, who through the blood of the eternal covenant brought back from the dead our Lord Jesus, that great shepherd of the sheep, equip you with everything good for doing his will. And may he work in us what is pleasing to him through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. 
God doesn't just give us commands to obey him and leave us on our own to follow them. He works in us and equips us to follow him and to worship him. See, with those closing words, the writer is reminding his readers, he's reminding us of the key to perseverance, the key to an authentic Christian life. God is the source and giver of peace, he says. He raised Jesus from the dead and he uses that same power to empower us to live for him. Jesus is our great shepherd of the sheep. He will care for us. He will protect us. He will lead us to be where he is. And we are not left alone. We are never left alone to live for Jesus. God is at work in us to equip us and empower us to live for him. The writer ends this letter calling us to worship God even in our weakness, even in our struggle because God empowers us to do that. And as we worship him in our actions, in our speech, in everything in our lives, we will actually grow in our understanding and our love of God for all that he has done for us through Jesus. Worship does us good. Worship is therapeutic. Worship is what we were created for. So worship God with your lives, the writer tells us, since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken.